Welcome to Writers Talking TV, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. I'm Dennis McGrath. Today we'll be discussing a show that tries to give her with every macabre metal mile. Packed with heavy metal, horror, and hilarity, Todd and the Book of Pure Evil is a rare original scripted series for the Space Channel. I have a bit of a sentimental attachment to this show for reasons that will become clear later. Join me in throwing the devil horns to welcome show creator Craig David Wallace. Really pleased to sort of welcome our guest today, uh, Craig David Wallace. There he is. Through my pockets for change. <laughs> and I'm really pleased to welcome him because um, for, for a couple of reasons. The first being that um, I actually remember the original short for Todd of the Book of uh, Pure Evil, which we're going to be look, looking at a little bit later, uh, when it was made at the Film Center. And I remember for a while there, the Film Center, you know, not to rag on the film center or anything, but they had a they had a great run where they were making a lot of short films that were really really Canadian short films, you know, like Wheat and Incest, and uh, and uh, suddenly in the Uptown Theater, I think it was, this film comes up, and I didn't want to go to the screening even because you know I was looks uh, uh, because because I'm you know anti-social a bit of an asshole, but um, I. Uh, I, I sat there, and the, the credits come up for this thing. Todd in the Book of Pure Evil, and for the moment, the credits start, you think, this is not a normal film center shoot, and this is not a normal project. Uh, from that, uh, the interesting thing is, and we'll talk to Craig about this, begins the development odyssey that is sort of like, you know, the story of the Jews wandering through Egypt for 40 years. Uh, uh, a very long development process, uh, complete with all the greatest hits of Canadian television, like, uh, you know, uh, delays due to sales and delays due to apathy and delay delays due to, due to just because we haven't had a delay this week. And, uh, and uh, to give you a sense of how long this has been in development is that when, I think Todd in the book Pure Evil went into development a couple of years after I left the Space Channel. I yeah. used to work at the Space Channel. And... Um, and the great thing about it was, I remember at one time, uh, we were in that, we actually had shows in development at the same time. And I remember reading a couple of early drafts of, of Todd because I was really curious. And I wanted to see it. I was like, yeah, this is funny. This is good. It really lives up to the, uh, the, the short. And uh, then, of course, you know, my show got shot and edited and scheduled and ran on City and sunk without a trace because City TV is the witness for the patient program for Canadian television. And um, and Todd was still going on and still going on and still going on. In development. In development. In development, just rolling the boulder up the hill. Um, so I think it's probably going to be natural to talk a little bit about motivation today um, and how you keep it going. Um, okay. But why don't, we, uh, why don't we sort of find out from you. Start with the short. Tell me about the genesis of the project and, right. and how you sort of came to uh, – Right. Um, well, the short, I mean, I, I was part of the Canadian Film Center's director's lab, and as part of that, um, you know, all the directors got to pitch a short film to be done through their program. And uh, I'd really gone from being really into post-punk into heavy metal that year. Uh, I was really into uh, this book called Lords of Chaos, which was all about um, Norwegian black metal guys and makeup burning down churches, and I was like totally into that, and we, we did this little workshop short, I mean, this um, writer named Max Reed, 
which was all about burning down churches with um, heavy metal and stuff. And it worked out really well. And so I pitched him this idea of doing Young Faust. And I always loved, like, Young Indiana Jones and Young Sherlock Holmes and things like that. So I just thought, you know, Young Faust would be the story of this, you know, 15-year-old heavy metal kid who uh, makes a deal with the devil to become, like, a popular kid so he could get the girl. And I just thought... Great. That was about as much of the Faust myth as I really wanted to know. You know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, through a certain amount of development going back and forth, we ended up with a script that we really liked, and the Film Center liked it. And then uh, I learned my first really big lesson when we were in a legal meeting, which was supposed to be one of those meetings that you go through where, you know, they just kind of give you an overview of, like, legality and process where it's kind of like just right. say you've gone through it. And, um, you know, right after we had gotten greenlit on our script, somebody um, had – one of my friends had actually clipped out of EW um, that week that Showtime – I think it was Showtime – did a movie of the week called I Was a Teenage Fast. And so I stupidly in this legal <laughs> meeting put up my hand and said, hey, Showtime did a movie called I Was a Teenage Fast. Is that going to be a problem with my short? And uh, I think it was like two and a half months of oh every God. single title being rejected. Um, so we went from Young Faust to uh, Encyclopedia Satanica, Dario Demonicus at one point, but that wouldn't really have any legal problems. I just really hated the name. <laughs> My personal favorite was Faust Times at Crowley High, but they wouldn't go for it. <laughs> and um, in the end, it just got to the point where um, you know we'd, we'd give them a name, and then we'd hear back from somebody that the legal department said no. And eventually, I just had to say get me on the phone with the legal department. And uh, I had a kind of a list of names. I was like, what about this? What about this? What about Todd in the Book of Pure Evil? And they're like, I think we can do Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. I'm like, awesome. And that was it. Got so it. that's how it was born. Yeah, have you ever, you ever seen a Little Britain? You see Little Britain? Yes. Only the sketch with the, I'm sorry, the computer says no. Oh, I haven't seen that one. That's, yeah. that's the, uh, I guess, lesson number one from this podcast or from this evening. Never ask a Canadian lawyer uh, uh, on your show a question ever. Yeah, and just never ask legal questions. Don't ask legal a question because yeah. the answer is no, we can't do it. Yeah. Um, the entire concept of E&O, which is errors and omissions insurance, in the United States, it's designed to prevent you from uh, losing if you get sued, right? right? Whereas in Canada, everything's such a shoestring, they don't want – they don't even want anybody to be able to, to, to launch a claim. So, like, you know, you can't say the president of the United States – uh, is black because people will think that's Barack Obama, and if you think I'm kidding, uh, you don't know Canadian television. So uh, don't Sounds ask like the lawyers a story anything. There. Don't ask the lawyers anything. <laughs> so okay. The, so on, from there, on the flip side of that, title. though, is that um, I don't think Young Faust would have ever made it into a TV series where mm-hmm. Todd in the Book of Pure Evil did. So it's got a certain, you, you know, it's one of those things where it, it's a great title because it's a very good high concept title. Well, as you don't really need a theme song to explain what that's about. Well, as as, uh, as one of the um, the uh, mentors at the CFC said when we went with that name, he said, "I have 25 years experience, and you are fucking up your whole careers by going with this title." So, wow. Yeah. And uh, we would sit through rough cut screenings, and he would go, you know, it's really working out. I think you might need a close-up at the end. You know, this whole sequence isn't really working, but, you know, if you do this, it'll work. And we're like, yeah, that's great. And by the way, I have 25 years' experience, <laughs> and you are fucking up your entire careers by calling it Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. That's hilarious. We yeah. need to get together with Martin Garrow and have a conversation about young people fucking <laughs> Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. Um, uh, you know, it's – I forget who, who said it about, and what they said it about, which makes it a great story. 
But um, <laughs> but there is about some title like that. Somebody says, you know, I, you hear a title like that, and either you want to see that or you don't. And that's kind of nice, you know. And that's our show. Really. Yeah, you good. know, you either like it or you don't. You that's get great. it or you don't. So t- talk about so from there, from that genesis of Young Faust. Talk about uh, you know what did you learn doing the short? Um, what did I learn during the short? Uh, I mean, the shoot was was pretty tough. Always have a backup severed head and make it out of rubber and not out of like a ceramic material because mm-hmm. if it drops, you're kind of hooped. That's right. Um, that was the main thing I learned. Um, and also, it's, it's never really as bad as it seems, you know, especially like on set when you're like, oh man, we totally fucked that up. Mm-hmm. And you get into the edit suite and you're like, yeah, yeah. It's not bad, you know. We'll just uh, we'll just cut that whole section. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. all right. We can live with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's. I mean, the short was a short, and we were lucky enough to like have a premiere at TIFF, which was great. Uh, except for the sound cut out um, halfway. Well, actually, like two seconds into it, and nobody could figure it out, and delayed the whole screening for an hour and a half. Um, which is a recurring theme that happens. We had a press junket for the show where the audio didn't work, and it took them forever to figure it out. Um, yeah, don't yeah. look at that one too closely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but really, it's like, you know, we did the short, and, uh, uh, you know, I was like, well, where do we go from here? And I was, like, developing feature ideas. I wasn't really thinking about a Todd feature, but I ran into um, another guy who had gone to the CFC um, a year before me, and uh, he had just come back from pitching a television series. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, I grew up, like, just wanting to be in film. Um, at that point, I hadn't really even been watching that much television. I was, like, really in my head wanting to make films. And he said, I pitched a television series. And literally, it was one of those things where I was like, you can do that? Really? <laughs> and, like, it never occurred to me before. And all of a sudden, I was like, hey, you know, the Book of Pure Evil could fall into a different kid's hands every week. And so, you know, I rounded up, you know, my producer and said, hey, let's turn this into a TV series. And a short seven years later, we got the show on the air. <laughs> now, that painful, painful, painful tale is upcoming. But I think first, why don't we uh, see the inspiration for it? So let's take a look at the original short that was produced at the film center. What year was this? No. This was shot in 2003. And it was, and you know, and, and honestly, and the thing that I love about it is that you've got a short film, you basically know what it's about, and even with that, it only takes Canadian intelligence seven years to develop it, which is nice. But let's take a look at the short, and, uh, and we'll come back afterwards, and we'll uh, talk about the, uh, the uh, development. From Little Acorns. Um, now, here's the thing that I, I, I sort of, I, I, I kind of, I, by the way, thank you for the line about, you know, the, the made from Judas's foreskin. I forgot about that. I actually, I actually dropped a Coke when I heard that the first time when I saw it. That's like most of the best lines of the show where somebody says it as a complete, like, we're never going to use this line because it's the stupidest thing. Yeah. But, and everybody else in the room just goes, yes, but that's what we're putting in there. So. See? Writing's yeah. cool. What can I tell you? It's fun. Um, now, I, I, I did check. Now, here's the funny thing. That's 2003. Uh, if you cast your minds back, those, those of you in the room, you, you might remember, you might not, that the biggest show on television in 2002, 2003 was probably The Osbournes. Right? Like, that's when that show was, the two, the two years it was on, it was, you know, it was, it was the biggest thing was all anybody would talk about. And there was this little mini bubble about heavy metal and stuff like that. It strikes me that this, you know, this is a, a kind of property that would uh, 
that would, you know, immediately somebody would say, and they would look at it and they would go, okay, we're not in the States where you'd have problems with the Bible Belt, so, um, you know, let's make a TV show out of this. But it didn't work out that way. So let's pick up the story after the uh, after you, you you find out that you know apparently you can pitch television shows exactly. And then what do you do? Well, you write a really nonsensical four page treatment that contradicts itself and doesn't really make any sense. And go, yeah, let's sell this. It'll be awesome. Um, really, what happened was we kind of you know me and uh, my producer Anthony Leo um, kept you know chipping away at it, working on it. Max, the original co writer of the short, decided that he didn't want to. Um, pursue developing the television series. Um, so eventually uh, we found about, out about this program called the NSI Totally Television Program. Right. And, uh, you know, we looked at applying for that. And at that point, you know, I really wanted to have somebody to work with me on the scripts. So we found another writer who was in the year after us at the CFC named Charles Pico. And, uh, you know, he loves John Carpenter films, so we totally hit it off. And uh, we applied to the, uh, the NSI, where uh, in our year, we there was us, there was uh, Less Than Kind, and The Kink and my hair, so it was wow, kind of okay. the uh, the holy trinity of uh, the NSI's program. It's the hardest thing in the world, you know, because it's, it sometimes seems like. Well, first of all, we we have this industry here where, because the show and our culture is not incredibly well entrenched, um, you often have a situation where you're dealing with a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, but how do you? I mean, you know, you're a guy at this point that you've gone to the film center, you've done this short, but you don't really have a lot of experience. So how do you hold on to first principles and actually turn around and say, you know, all this advice and this path they're taking me down? Like, how do you do that? How do you have the balls to do that? <laughs> well, I mean, really, it's the the number one thing is not having any idea what you're doing. Like, you know, you have no idea that you're doing things the wrong way. I mean, we all, like, all of us who are working on the show came from the feature film world, right? Where, you know, it was like really a director kind of driven industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's the way it is. And um, I, in a way, I always kind of felt like I was trying to create a TV show so I could get a job directing television because it was the only way I would ever you know, get into directing television. That's If you look at the feature market in Canada, that's probably not an unfair statement. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, we just really didn't know any better. We just, you know, kept, you know, chipping away at stuff. And, uh, you know, when you're in development for as long as we were, you know, you eventually reach the point where you've built up enough trust with the people that you're working with, both on the production company side and also on the um, broadcaster side, that they do trust you with the property. I want to circle back just for a second because you, you said that in Totally Television, you really learned to pitch. What did that consist of? What did you learn? What were you doing wrong and what, did they and what were the skills that you picked up that, that you think got you over the, over the top? Well, the first thing is I had no idea how to pitch, so that mm -hmm. was a big help, uh, just even saying this is what a pitch is, right. which is great. And, uh, you know, the NSI and, um, you know, Kit Redmond was running the program at the time, and she does a big um, – uh, or did a big pitch to win seminar at Banff every year. I don't, I don't know if she's still doing it, but it's just really simple stuff. You know, you start off with, um, you know, who you are and why somebody should pay attention to you, and then you know, just the step by step, like you know, this is introduction to the show. You know, this is the format that it is. This is the main premise. These are the characters. These are the kind of episodes that you're going to see week after week, and really being able to tailor it down into like a really, you know, um, 
really clear and concise two to three minute pitch. And I was terrified by that because, like, you know, I'm a behind the camera guy. You mm-hmm. know, the idea of performing just freaks me out uh, entirely. And so I always had a really hard time practicing this pitch because it really felt like a performance. And um, one of the great things about the NSI is that they bring broadcasters in, uh, they introduce you to them, but they also um, basically make it so that you have to go out into the marketplace and pitch your show. So you actually have an in to have your producer phone up, um, you know, CTV and say, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so. I just went through the NSI totally television program, and part of that program is for us to go and pitch you guys. And so it's it's kind of like a soft entrance there. You know, it's like kid gloves a bit, like you're going to come in and pitch. And that's kind of nice for, you know, if you haven't really done it before, you know, people, um, you know, are knowing, they know that you're kind of a newbie at it. And uh, when we went in, um, you know, we had our well-oiled rehearsed pitch, our big song and dance, and uh, we couldn't really get like a line or two into it before the people at the other side of the table just started interrupting us and asking us questions, <laughs> and, which is great because then it becomes a conversation. And, yeah. you know, and somebody has a you – know, you can be all excited like, yeah, Todd's got this book and the book's really cool. You know, It's like this big and it's got all this stuff. It's like, yeah, well, what does the book do? It's like, oh, right, yeah. Well, you know, it does this and this and this. And it was really nice to keep on track. Um, I did a live pitch at Banff, one of those um, uh, pitch competitions, mm-hmm. which was hell because you go up and, like, the lights are super bright. You can't see anybody. You have this wall of broadcasters who are just staring you down. And uh, you just kind of keep talking and looking at your notes, and eventually you reach the end and you hope that you haven't died. Basically. Yeah, those pitches in Banff, that, that, that sort of whole thing in Banff is to the pitch as the hills is to life in your 20s, I guess. It was just, it was terrible. And then, even worse, then you have the broadcasters, one after another, telling you why your pitch is wrong. Right, it's right. Like, great, thank you. Yeah. So. It's an amazing, it's it's interesting, you know, like, I mean, I I, I finally, I, I had a little bit of experience now, not a lot, because I'm sitting here in Toronto, but, uh, and it didn't work, because I'm sitting here in Toronto, but uh, I've actually done a few U.S. pitches now, and it's amazing the difference, because... Um, you know, the, the, the cliche is that in Toronto, they, you know, in the Canadian system, <laughs> they'll come back with you, all right, here's why your show will never work. Whereas in the States, they don't do that. They really ask interesting – They it's like every show will work, but they will ask you the most uh, – I want to be purpose-spacious, uh, whatever that word is – the most trenchant question about – what it is, and but they they know their audience and they know their brand so well that they literally will zero in the part of your pitch that is kind of loogie that you right. don't necessarily know, or the part that could do them the most, and see how you take it. And it's a very very different experience. So I guess you know, in in essence, you're you're having that lodestar of of knowing enough to take it back to first principles. And do you think that saved you? Um, I mean, our show has always been somewhat unique in that, like, we didn't really know what we were doing, you know, going going forward. Part of also going through this whole process um, at the NSI. I mean, I, I really can't say enough about the NSI program. It was just so great for us. Like, it was like a real crash course into television. Like, it opened so many doors for us. Mm-hmm. One of the things that opened for us was that um, part of the process was to they hook you up with a mentor. Right. And one of the people who came in to talk to us was Brad Pullman from Maple Pictures. Oh, wow. And it was great. Lionsgate at the time. And he yeah. was really excited because they had just just got this really small film that you thought was going to do really well called Saw. And uh, we were like, this is the guy for us. And he became our mentor. And, uh, you know, it didn't last terribly long. We, you know, we, we talked to him for 
I think maybe a six, six months to a year afterwards, and then it kind of fizzled out, uh, and we moved on. Um, but he opened up a lot of doors for us, and being able to, you know, go into uh, – we eventually – our first development deal was with Chum, and he wasn't with us for our first – like, we actually ended up doing two pitches to them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, on our follow-up pitch, he was in the room with us, and that helps a lot. Yeah. Uh, but just to show the, the sheer length of time that it took to get Todd on the air, that um, – from the NSI, where Brad Pellman was talking about Saw going to be released in like two or three weeks, to Todd getting on the air, while we were cutting Todd, Saw 7 was being <laughs> cut in a suite next to us. So that's how long it took. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty sobering. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how influential it was to have him in the room with us, uh, but it was great. You know, it was great to have him there and just that, that show of support that, you know, he believed in the project enough to, you know, Take the meeting with us. Okay, so I've got, I've got to move this along a little bit because uh, we're still uh, where I see it. We're still only in year one of your development. <laughs> so uh, so you pitched at Chum. It goes to development at Chum. Yeah. What sort of uh, how does that work? And when, then what happens? Oh man, I'm trying to remember all this because it was so long ago. Um, we already wrote a spec pilot, so we basically you know did a development deal for uh, you know a bit of a polish on the pilot and two new scripts, which is great. You know, I wrote one and my uh, co-writer wrote the other one. Um, and that was really great. Uh, you know, we went through like that. I guess that took around like eight months or something to really, you know, finish that up. And then um, everybody knows about benefits packages. When one broadcaster buys another broadcaster, a portion of that sale has to go towards Canadian production. Well, Chum had bought Craig Media. So there was all this money that needed to be spent in the Prairie Provinces. And considering that Todd was anywhere, uh, right. they thought, hey, this is great. You know, we c- you can shoot this anywhere. So, um, you know, they made some uh, suggestions for provinces to look at. And uh, we, you know, ended up partnering with Frantic Films in, uh, in Winnipeg. And uh, they were really wanting to get through some of this um, uh, benefits money. So we got a development deal for five more scripts and to bring on, like, another writer. So, and Less Than Kind benefited from the same sort of thing. So Absolutely. So we, Lesson 2, uh, yeah. luck and opportunity in right place, right time. Which always frustrates everybody, but it's so important. I think we got the call from Chum that we were in development maybe a month after Less Than Kind did. So I remember Chris was saying, we just got a call from Chum, and uh, you know, we had, they had pitched Chum originally a few, like, a, like I guess a month before us, and they had to wait, I think, the same like five months before they actually got yeah, the answer that it was going in development. Um, so, yeah, we were always kind of neck and neck with Less Than Kind, which was always, uh, always interesting. And it was interesting, too, that it ended up, we ended up shooting in Winnipeg at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we've got, like, a really long-term connection with that show through the NSI and through Winnipeg and similar directors and we sharing should, writers. We should say at this point, too, or uh, I, I'm going to say at this point that, you know, at that point uh, as well, uh, one of the other things you probably had going for you was one of the, one of the truly great, caring Canadian uh, television executives, Diane Bain, who was at Chum at that time, who really actually, you know, really gives a shit about the Canadian stuff, which they don't all do. Uh, Diane Bain, Louise, Louise Clark. I mean, you know, for a while there, these these are executives that really made a difference because they really cared about the material. Um, but then, <laughs> well, also at Chum, um, so, uh, who was working with Diane was uh, Rebecca DeVasquale, yes, yes. who was heading up all of the Chum, Chum properties um, as a development executive, and she was really instrumental in helping us develop the show because, um, you know, we always hear horror stories about like you know you get broadcaster notes and they don't make any sense and all this stuff, and we get our first set of notes and our notes are like. 
So episode three is a lot scarier and bloodier than the first two episodes. Can you make the first two episodes more bloody and more scary to match it? And we were just like, wow, that's, this is awesome. And so, uh, you know, working with her was really, really great. You set the tone here, too. You should, you, you know, she'll probably kill me if she hears this. But, but uh, you have to picture, you know, you, there must have been some aspect when you walked in and you met with Rebecca for the first time. You're like, Yes. Because Rebecca is just very sort of, she's very very sweet and she's very pretty, but she uh, but she's she's goth. She's very kind of yeah. Goth she's looking. lost a lot of the uh, goth. Uh, she did, but back the time, well, of course so. she has. It's been it's been fifteen years, but yes, you know, yeah. but uh, but you must have felt good in that first meeting, thinking yeah. I might have a receptive audience here. No, I know it worked out really well. Um, but uh, yeah, then you know we were you know we had eight scripts written. Uh, to um, you know, half of them were at like a, a first draft stage, and uh, then it was the like, can you shore up everything to you know pitch for a green light um, before the CTV buyout happens? Because CTV had just made a buyout move on Chum. Um, so we did our song and dance. We put together a huge package and stuff, and. Uh, uh, we didn't get the cut at that point, but uh, Less Than Kind did, which was great. Um, but, uh, yeah, we were put into the uh, the void of we have no idea whether or not you're going to be at CTV or Rogers. Because if you're looking back there and if you're like a buyout uh, history junkie like I am with uh, CRTC stuff, um, what ended up happening was that CTV tri- uh, bought out Chum uh, because they wanted the city properties uh, like mainly, I think. Um, but then CRTC said that you couldn't have uh, two English-language-speaking uh, stations in the same market. So Rogers had to come in and buy out the city channels. So we had no idea if we were going to be at Rogers or if we were going to be at City. We had no idea if the uh, – sorry, no, Rogers or CTV. We had no idea if the benefits package for the Chum buyout was going to end up at Rogers or CTV. So, you know, at that point, we were thinking our entire show was living and breathing off of benefits money from the, Chum, uh, the Craig Media buyout. Um, so we had no idea where we were going to be. We were basically in the dark for, I think, around nine months. So, the, so, so, how do you keep yourself motivated during that? You know, during that, this incredible interregnum where it's literally <coughs> just people shrugging their heads and everybody. You know, I still had friends uh, at Chum at that point because they hadn't all been laid off yet. But um, you know, and, and it was just the whole organization was it was like a fly trapped in amber. Yeah. There was no decisions being made in any way. You're a creative person. How do you, like, how do you keep the momentum going, or how do you keep the enthusiasm going for the project, or do you just work on other things? What did you do during that time? Yeah, I don't think we were that great, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> there was a lot of um, sitting around uh, Charles's kitchen table um, as he chain smoked, and we both just drank, just going, "What the fuck is going on with our lives?" Well, we drinking works. It does. Um, yeah, yeah, for no, a while. Yeah, for a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, on, on the whole, we just started working on other stuff. I mean, we started working on, like, you know, new TV series ideas or new pitches. I mean, we had to keep busy. Um, one of the things that we ended up doing was um, one of our producers, and this is a very long, convoluted story, but somehow we had a connection to Jason Muse. And uh, there was word that Jason Muse, his, he had this, this company that was interested in doing web series. Mm-hmm. So we were like, let's do the Book of Pure Evil web series, where Jason mm-hmm. Muse would be kind of like the script keeper kind of guy. You'd see the episode start with him cleaning up a big mess, and he would kind of explain the story of how that mess happened. And so we took 
most of our episodes, turned them into like little two to five minute web you know, series episodes, and wrote them and you know tried to pitch that as a as a web series, which you know kept us busy up until we found out that we finally landed at CTV and space. So how does that call come? So pick up the story then that you know that finally they you know <clears throat> they decide what they're doing and then you know the the gears of Canadian television finally you know move slowly into place and uh, and you get the call. We get the call. We get a call that you know there's this guy at space. The guy who's taking over space is Fraser Robinson, and he's um, you know the new VP was uh, was Brent Haynes, who uh, was the um, VP of comedy. Mm-hmm. So he became the VP of comedy and space, and he was uh, you know. Coincidentally, I don't know how coincidentally, he was one of those guys who was on the panel when I did the live pitch right. who tore apart why my show sucked. <laughs> so that was great. My first idea. Yay. Um, so we get on the phone, and uh, it's Fraser Robinson, and uh, and he's like, like, hey, guys, I love the show. And he just went on and on and on about how he loved the show. And he talked about when he walked into his office, he had this little stack of pitches, and then he had, like, the stack of Todd in the Book of Pure Evil scripts, so he was totally into it, and uh, he um, he was talking about how I think that was when he was talking about how he had just gone to see Dio in concert, and I was just like, thank you, fucking God. it was like amazing, you know, he was so totally into it. Um, and actually, one of our meetings right after that, he was like, you know, I really love all this stuff, and I really get all the heavy metal references, which makes me nervous that I get all the heavy metal nef- references because I'm a bit of a metal nerd. And if I'm getting them all, I think we're really losing like a lot of the main, like you know, a wider audience. So maybe we should like you know peel that back. And I was like, you know, really distressed about that. So I put together this little PowerPoint presentation about the resurgence of 80s heavy metal photography <laughs> and modern culture. And, you met uh, Sam Dunn? Uh, yes, I have. Have you guys? Yeah. yeah. You and and I told I told everybody I made this presentation. I'm bringing it in for the next meeting. And uh, when I pulled out my laptop to show him the presentation, I saw like my producer's face go white. Like, <laughs> like I was like, I told you I was going to do this. And um, you know, I started playing it. And you know, it was like when Lordy had just Lordy is this crazy like metal band that they all dress up in monster makeup and stuff. And they had won Eurovision, which is a big European um, music competition. Uh, Metalocalypse had just got the highest rated uh, or highest Billboard charting death metal album of all time guitar hero was exploding and like literally i got two seconds into my presentation when fraser was like yeah i was over at my uh my nephew's on the weekend and we were playing guitar hero and i was like oh was way way <laughs> off base yeah you don't need to change anything and i was just like awesome see oh god that just, yeah. that just hits me right that it's like there it is it's like you work and you toil and you toil and somebody's like, I'm not sure, but, you know, my nephew, girlfriend, wife, uncle, hat salesman, you know, uh, said they liked it, so now it's okay. Yeah. yeah, and so that worked out really great. And Fraser is, man, he is one of the truly most, you know, genuinely awesome people in the universe. Uh, I really don't think we would have ever gotten the show on the air if it wasn't for him. He went to bat for us so many times and really believed in the project. Well, that's an incredibly heartening thing to hear, and it's interesting because, um, you know, the amazing thing about it is that I think that if there's something that's desperately needed even more in Canadian television, you know, we tend to be, Canadians tend to be a slightly risk-averse people, you know? And uh, broadcasting here is is kind of based on not making the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, the, the new announcement of CTV now, apparently they're going to have a programming committee because the, and the committee's job is going to be pick to pick hits, right? Because that's what's going to really get you to hit television shows as a committee. Um, and and amazingly, when I study, the, you know, if you look at the American television industry, 
Um, there's this great book by Bill Carter named Desperate, Desperate Networks. And if you read that, you start to really, your head starts to spin and then sink because you realize that every single show that ever becomes a hit on television becomes, it only gets a chance to get up to the starting gate because some executive at the network fought for it. And it's never the person in charge. It's always somebody a little further down. So you actually managed to have kind of a more American television development experience at a Canadian network. Absolutely. I mean, we were so lucky. I mean, at one point, um, I was at a WGC Awards thing, and uh, um, Fraser was there, and Rebecca was there, and I introduced them, saying, hey, you know, new development executive, uh, old development executive, and uh, they started chatting, and um, a couple of weeks later, I was actually pitching Rebecca a new series, and an hour after I left, uh, she had taken a job at Space working with Fraser and Development. <laughs> and so, you know, we were working with Rebecca again, which is great because she's, you know, really phenomenal and really knows her stuff. And so we had yet another champion behind us on the, on, you know, at Space, which is fantastic. Okay, great. But now we're still only at, like, what, year three now? No, I think we're, 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 we're around year five. Okay, now, oh, good. All right. Maybe year five, year six. I mean, we, we got in at the new Space at CTV uh, with eight scripts, um, five of those being at first draft stage. So we still owed a second draft. Right. And, uh, you know, we had this meeting with um, – it was supposed to be a financing meeting where we were talking about, like, putting all the money together. And we hadn't actually had an official talk with Brent yet, mm-hmm. um, you know, the VP. And uh, he was going to swing by to say hello. And so, you know, we were having this meeting with Fraser, and then Brent swings by to say hello and, you know, shakes everybody's hands. And he was like, you know, one thing I was thinking about the series, and he sits down and he just starts talking. Yeah. And then at some point, like, you just see everybody, like – as he's talking, pull out, like, notepads or laptops and turn them on and start taking notes because he's giving, like, full-on script notes on everything. Oh, and it was it was pretty crazy. I mean, for to his credit, he was really like, you know, I don't think you really pushed this as far as you wanted to go because Chum wouldn't let you, but we want to see how far you can go. You know, CTV will pull you back. You know, don't don't uh, don't let you know don't don't censor yourself. You know, go as far as you want to go. You know, like, we were pretty happy with the scripts at that point, but we're like, oh yeah, totally. Wow, hold, held back totally. So, uh, <laughs> you know, after that meeting, it was like, what are we gonna do? And I like went home and wrote a four-page memo and about like, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna, it's gonna go crazy. It's gonna be this and that and. Giant penises turning people to stone, which was actually uh, we already had that, so I don't know how much further he was expecting. <laughs> but yeah, it, we just went really full hog, and uh, you know, I, I was like, "Holy fuck! You know, this is you know going to make it or break it. He's going to like you know fire all of us or something." And we sent the notes to Fraser, and then um, yeah, I think it was like literally the next week. It was like, "Like Fraser, have you you know has Brent had a look at the notes?" And uh, actually, no. You know what happened was it was like the next week, your blog, you posted something about Brent Haynes leaving. Um, oh, we, oh, yeah, yeah okay. and it was like on a Sunday or sure. something, yeah. and like you had the scoop first, and we were all freaking well, out. I found about out about it. it at a baseball game, and it was right. like, oh god, he's sitting there beside me. He's like, you can't tell anybody this until Tuesday, and I'm like, can I tell people Tuesday? He's like, yeah. Well, and so we all found out from reading your blog, and uh, it was crazy, and yeah. uh, you know, so we got 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 a hold of Fraser, and he's like, love the notes, Brent's gone. And so it's like, it's like, cool. So, you know, we kind of dodged a bullet there, too. Because, like, we have no – I mean, Brian could have loved the notes. I have no idea. But um, Fraser loved them, and that's all that really counted at that point. And, you know, we got to, you know, push the scripts even further, which is great for us. And so luck again. Luck again. So we're just wow. totally hitting – you know, dodging bullets, hitting the wave at the right point. It's just – 
very long process, but still. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fraser kept like pushing it and saying like, you know, we got eight scripts here. They're all really solid. I'm going to go, I'm just going to push for series. We're going to go straight to series. We're not going to do a pilot. Great. And uh, we kept going and going and like, you know, now we're heading into summer. It's been like eight months. We finally get the call and we're all on the call and it's like, all right, we're going to do a pilot. And it's kind of funny because, you know, you expect that call to be like the we're gonna yeah. do a I've never heard like so many people so pissed off that we were gonna do a pilot because we were so expecting to do a series at that point. It'd been like six and a half years. We had eight scripts, uh, but we were doing a pilot and we got development for five more episodes to make it thirteen. Right. So you know, after after we were like, we kind of got off the phone and went, yeah, it's it's pretty cool that we get to do a pilot and write some more scripts. Um, you know, we all cheered up a lot. And, There's uh, a lot of people in this room. Oh, I know, I know, I know. It's, and it's, like, yeah, Dude, I can't we, believe I got a pilot. Oh, yeah, we were Damn pissed, it. man. We were so pissed. And then I was like, eh, it's not so bad, really. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, and uh, so, yeah, we went, to, went about writing those extra five scripts to finish off the season and casting the pilot and, uh, yeah, shot the pilot, had a lot of fun. Okay, so this is now the this is now officially one of the weirdest development stories I've ever heard. So now you go to shoot the pilot, yes. but you have thirteen episodes. Oh, and we uh, they want a pilot episode five and not episode one. Fair enough, sure. Because they want to see like midstream, a typical episode. You know, a typical episode. Right. Yeah, and luckily they picked the most expensive episode too. They want to have like the most prosthetics and stuff. Right. So you know we we're like okay, well it's going to cost us much, and believe it or not, they said yeah, okay, good, yeah. So that was pretty awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well then. Uh, now, we're not going to watch that episode. No, we're not. Right? Do you want to set up the episode that we're going to watch a little bit? I believe you said it was episode 10. It's, we're going to watch episode 10. Actually, watching the short, you know, really watching the short and watching the pilot is probably, probably would have been the best move because a lot of the same things happen. But holy crap, am I sick of watching that pilot, man. I've seen it so many times. And, you know, it's generally the first one everybody's going to watch anyway. So here's one that you, you may have missed if you've been watching it, like tuning in every now and then. Um, yeah, it's episode 10. It's nice and self-contained. Uh, I wrote and directed it, and there's actually a lot of bits that kind of came out of the short film. That's that great. Well, too. I'm very pleased with that because I've seen the pilot. I saw it on a flight to Los Angeles, actually. Right, great. It was one of the ones that uh, – and there were other people watching it, which, uh, you know. Hey, I fantastic. But uh, why don't we put on that uh, – do, do we have the, the AV picture here? Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, let's play episode 10 now, and we'll come back, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, your production and what you learned from that. And then we will open it up to gracious questions from you kind people. Excellent. Okay, so cool. let's watch uh, episode 10 of Todd and the Book of Pure Evil. Right on. That was really fun. Yay. Thank you. So I guess uh, to square the circle, I mean, you know, a lot of it is probably self-evident to the people in the room that have watched the episode, but um, for the podcast, maybe not. Right. So can you you tell us a little bit about, again, the idea of Todd in the Book of Pure Evil, the, the short, is one story. You know, one guy gets the book. Tell us about uh, what's the conceit of the series and how you widen it out so you can get 13 episodes out of it. Well, I mean, originally when we were pitching it as a series, we were like, the, the original idea was like, get rid of Todd, it'll just be the book of pure evil. And every week, the book falls into someone's hands, and they die in some sort of horrible way at the end. 
And we thought this was great. Mm-hmm. It was like, awesome. I would totally watch that. And then, you know, people kept saying, like, yeah, but why would people want to tune in every week? And we were like, it's because it's awesome. And, uh, yeah, like, yeah, recurring characters and stuff. And when we actually sat down to, you know, write the pilot. Um, we, you know, just racked our brains for, you know, a couple of days until we were like, we need a hero. And, you know, we brought Todd back into it and, you know, created the overarching um, you know, mythology behind it all. So the idea is that Todd's the first one to find the book in a long time. He basically releases the book, and he causes so much havoc that he vows to destroy it, uh, mainly to get in Jenny's pants because she's hunting the book, and it's a way for him to get close to her because uh, we're juvenile in that way. And, um, yeah, every week the book falls into someone in some other unsuspecting student's hands who uh, uses it to solve whatever sort of teenage uh, angsty thing they're doing at the moment. And... Uh, Hilarity, hilarity ensues. With and do they always die at the end? Uh, almost. There's a few notable exceptions. So it's nice. You have your own Kenny. It's yes, good. it's 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 pretty fun. Yeah. Um, and I guess clearly, so you've got the team of people that are that are the friends that are sort of trying to figure out what happened with the book, and then you've got at the end we see the. The Secret Society that's trying to get the book back. So you've got, you know, enough for mythology there. Yeah, you know, we've got our, our antagonist, our main antagonist being the guidance counselor who secretly is Satanist, who then, you know, starts to actually become one of the gang, and then they find, well, you know, hilarity ensues. Sure. Um, one of my favorite things watching this show is that, uh, and, you know, I, I got this right from the beginning watching it, was, you know, we take a lot of knocks sometimes from the general public and people who don't understand the idea of, you know, what is it? an English-Canadian sensibility. You look at French-Canadian TV, you see Les Boys, you see all their their shows, and that's a Comte and stuff, and uh, it's pretty clear to see what their vision on TV is. But the thing that gets me is, that the, is about this show is that, is that you watch it, and it seems to be in a grand tradition of things like Trailer Park Boys that just this shit would never get on television in the United States. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is funny. I mean, one of the big things that we, we keep finding is, um, as we're looking for that U.S. sale... Um, it's the um, the complete nonchalant drug use that really gets people. Like mm-hmm. Todd and Curtis are always smoking weed, like constantly, sometimes in the school, and uh, nobody seems to really care. Like we don't really seem to. But you also have a joke in that particular episode that we just w- uh, watched. You had a you had a joke about um, where basically the father says, "I'm going to say I'm going to say to you, son, what I should should have said to your mother 16 years ago. There are other options." Meaning, you know, a, you had a joke about abortion. Indeed. Which you can't even – like an American TV character can't even have an abortion. They have to have a magic miscarriage. And and you're making jokes about – and you're making jokes about drug use. You're making jokes about Satanism, which, you know, wouldn't – you know, th- in the United States, they think Tinky Winky is, is Satanistic. You have a show where Satanists are, are part of the characters. And, you know, and, and to me – Mining that kind of humor, and I mean, you know, what is your reaction from from your audience been? I guess who who is your audience? Do you think, and and what have they uh, what well, have they had to say about it? According to uh, BBM Canada, our uh, our audience is uh, eighteen to twenty five mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, is that right? Is it eighteen to twenty five? Yeah, but uh, but also um, what is it? Eighteen to fifty four is the major one. Anyways. Yeah, generally, um, you know, the same type, type of people. Probably a male skew. Male right? skew, yeah, kind of a South Parky sort of audience. The people who, who don't watch television, in other words. Exactly. And then that's, I think, really what, what really hit us well when we were trying to promote the show is that we really made a show for people who don't normally watch television and who 
who certainly aren't spending the extra twenty bucks to get Space Channel every right. month. You know, it's um, it's it's pretty crazy. I mean, just like um, on Rogers, in order to get Space at all, you can't order it a la carte. Right. You have to get the premium package in order to get it. As far as I can tell, if anybody knows anything else, please let me know. But um, it's pretty crazy. It's uh, you know, so you're dealing with a. Um, a much smaller percentage of the population who can even tune into the show. But by the same token, these are the people, you know, these the, this is the cohort that is in the magic sweet spot that all the advertisers are chasing and the people that aren't watching it. In the United States, the only thing they're watching is live sports and adult swim. Yeah. And you've got a show that appeals to that audience. Yes. So what's the problem? Um, you know, there's various things. Um, but, uh, I mean, we may be close to a U.S. deal sometime soon, but... Uh, that's pretty much all I can really say. Do you mean soon in the relative uh, meaning of the word soon, or soon in Todd the book Pure Evil in development Def- for 19 years? Definitely so. in Todd terms, okay. yeah. Like <laughs> right, probably right yeah. around the same time we find out about season two getting green light. Uh, that'll be when we find out about everything else. Um, I'll ask questions to somebody in the audience doesn't have to. Talk about how Jason Mewes got involved. Um, okay. Is that uh, based on the web series thing you were talking about? Kind of. I mean, long, long story was that um, on the short film, our production manager was this uh, great guy named Jim Jackman, who was an associate producer at uh, Degrassi at the time. Mm-hmm. And we actually shot the short on the side of Degrassi. And then when uh, Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes were doing the you know, Degrassi thing, um, he really was in charge of um, you know, handling them, basically, right. like you know, working with them and stuff. And so we had this connection, and uh, we always thought, hey, you know, maybe we could get Jason Muse involved, so you know, working that angle, we managed to get him on board, which was you know totally awesome. Um, when we shot the pilot, it was really great because um, you know he he had like all these different connecting flights, and he's Jason Muse, and you hear all the stories, and you know you're three days into production on like a super expensive pilot, and you know you're going over every day, and Jason Muse is here, and you go out and to meet him, and he's like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so we're like, fuck, what are we going to do? And we'd like talk about like we're going to write all the dialogue and big cue cards. And, you know, we're going to be there. And I'm like talking to Alex, who's playing Todd. I'm like, okay, you know, what we're going to do here is you just keep saying all your dialogue. And if he starts going off track, just keep saying your dialogue, you know, <laughs> just, you know, go with it and stuff. And um, and when we, you know, rolled action, um, Jason Mewes hit every line. Perfect. It's like shocking it was, to it see was, that he could actually it act. It was crazy. He was so good. And he was good to the point where he was like, you know, I, I don't really know if my character would be saying that. And you're like, yeah, he's got a good point. You know, he's really, uh, his character probably wouldn't say it in that way. You know, he's like, he's... He was asking questions about it. Like he was, he was on top of it. It was really, really awesome. How much since you had all these uh, scripts in, or in, in some form before you uh, actually went into production on it? I'm curious about how much you then later tailored, tailored them to the cast that you got. Because it strikes me that you got a you got a particularly good cast. You got, you got you know you got Julian Richings, who obviously who is hilarious. You know every time you see him. He's good. Chris Levins Chris is Levin's a great is score as that, in, that, in that character. Well, going back to the pilot, um, yeah, we actually had somebody else cast in the Chris Levins role. We had a star mm-hmm. that we were very excited about mm-hmm. um, who um, – yeah, who had read the pilot script, which was actually probably the least one of the least offensive scripts that we had. Right. And um, yeah, you know, it was two days, three days before we were actually going to camera, and um, you know, it was one of those things where it's like uh, the star wants to do a conference call, 
and it's not good. And he wanted to bail out of everything because he wanted he thought this was the kind of show he could watch with his you know um, tween daughter, and it was definitely not that show. Right. And uh, and he was also complaining that it seemed like the part of Jimmy the janitor had beefed up a lot, and he doesn't know why. Sure. Because uh, you know our other star. And so uh, yeah, we were panicking and panicking, and basically this actor broke his contract. Like we had him under contract, and he broke the contract. And um, you know that's one of those cases where um, you know having that champion at the broadcaster is like essential because we found out much later on. Like we knew it was dire, but we didn't really know that how much was really on the line. It was like right at the time where everybody was like in you know financial peril. Everybody was getting their development or green lights revoked. Like everything was just getting pulled back. And uh, they were going to apparently can us two days before, two or three days before we shot the pilot. But um, Fraser at Space uh, said, no, you know, like if you do this, it's going to really, it's just, you know, we've, I've been working so long with these guys. Um, you know, you, you can't do this and I'll walk. Uh, I hope I'm allowed to tell that story, but too late. Anyways. But, no, but basically, the, Fraser circles, is awesome. So it circles back to the same thing, though. Totally. You, you had a, a network executive actually stick their neck out. Yeah, totally. And so, and because of that, and probably only that, you got to make the show you wanted exactly. to Exactly. And in true Todd fashion, we lost the guy who we were really excited about and got Chris Levins, who subsequently, even once we locked the deal, we actually started seeing some more of Chris's work, and we were always like, fuck, man, we really should have gone with him. But we already yeah. had this deal, and so we got Chris in, and it was like... He made the role. And yeah, so it's great. Actor. It's one of those great things that it looked like it was going to be a totally shitty experience, like something really bad was going to happen, and it turned out to be like awesome and worked out really well. I can't, uh, I, I, this is really terrible because it's, it's, it's supposed to be like Writer's Guild craft, and it's like luck, 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 it's, luck, it's, luck, yeah, fluke, lots of, luck, luck, lots fluke. of fluke and lots of luck. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, six years of you know rewriting the same scripts. There's a lot of craft in that. What did your uh, <laughs> lot of craft, lot of craft? So. Uh, how many pages were your scripts, and what kind of ad breaks did you use? And, uh... Well, that's the thing is because, you know, we, we were really writing in a vacuum because Charles and I, like, we really didn't have any other TV experience except for what we were doing. And so we were always like, well, how many ad breaks should we do? And we were told, well, how many ad breaks do you want to do? Like, it was really like, well, we'll just work around stuff. So we we're like, okay, well, we'll do it this way. And we really, you know, it was, it was kind of amazing how much leeway – we had with everything, you know, and like we deliver a script that's about like a guy who like has a really small penis and he uses the book to make a giant penis but it turns people to stone, right? Or like, here's the script. And we go into the meeting and it's like like I love it. I don't know how the director's gonna shoot it. Those were the notes we got. And we're like, awesome. You know, it was it was unbelievably great, um, the whole experience. How did you shoot that? Um, that's episode eight, so uh, you can check it out on Spacecast. I think oh, yeah. You know, you may have started out naive, Craig, but you're not that little girl from the rodeo anymore. Six I can years tell. in development. Um, um, what else we got on the list here? Let's see. I'm trying to. Uh, do you have any sort of tips about sort of like what your process is? Like, uh, do you, is it just you and somebody around a kitchen table? Like, uh, well, you know, it was actually for years. It was me and Charles around this kitchen table, and uh, and then when we got greenlit, it was like, okay, well, we have 13 episodes. We shot a pilot. You know, we've got to go through and clean this all up. And actually, in response to your earlier question about like you know working with the cast and everything like that, and having getting the cast all together and tailoring the scripts to it, uh, one of the things that um, uh, Space and Fraser in particular were really big on was um, casting all your leads against each other. You know, like find a Todd yep. and then find like the best friend, find the girl, like test them all. And so we did like uh, casting took 
like months and months and months. So we just kept bringing people in, bringing people in, trying them all out together. So, I mean, that was a really big reason for the chemistry between the cast because we really, uh, we tried a whole bunch of different combinations and it would be like, you know, these two work, but these don't. Uh, and then we found like our core four and it was just fantastic seeing them all work together. Like the sparks were there, which is, which is great. Um, and then shooting the pilot too. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that we learned shooting the pilot. It was episode five. You know, everybody was kind of getting into character. I learned a lot about, you know, what it means to be like a show runner on set, you know, learning how to find your... Um, Were you on set for the whole time? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, and that's the thing, too. I mean, it was really weird for me doing the pilot because, like, you know, it was it was my show, and they chose a script to pilot that I didn't write, and we brought on a different director. And so it was kind of like, yeah, it's my show, but I'm not directing or writing it, which is coming from the film world. It's kind of like, why am I even here, in, mm-hmm. in a way? And so it was a little bit... It was really a real learning experience for me to find out really where my role really fit in with that as kind of like, you know, the vision of the show and keeping everything running and, um, and you know, drawing that line between where, uh, you know, the director the director's role is and what's the role of the show overall, right? Where you really leave the director to deal with the, um, you know, the episode is theirs, you know? It's like you've got all these really great ideas. We've talked about it. You know, do the episode stuff, you know, your way. You know, we'll talk about it if things, you know, we bump anything. But anything that does deals with the overall, which especially in the pilot is the characters themselves. You know, like that's my domain. You know, I've got to I've got to make sure these characters are hitting all the right beats and that they really know their characters because of the first time they're doing it. So uh, it, was, um, it was a real learning experience. And the first two days were hell, and the last three days were wonderful. What else did you – that's interesting. What else did you uh – I mean, you say that you learn a lot about, you know, and in the most fiery, stressful way about being a showrunner. So, what other things did you, what did you learn? Like, what, what did you, well, I mean, I kind what of, what do you know now? You didn't know that. I came from things like in a really different kind of background. Like, I didn't come up through writers' rooms. I came up, you know, like, uh, I, I went through, um, like, a Vancouver Film School when I was 19. So, this was like years ago. Um, and then from there, I jumped right, like, I just kept shooting my own short films. I jumped right into post production. And, like, not fun post production where you're editing, post production that you're, like, patching cables and sticking tapes into machines and striping them with time code kind of post production. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I really, like, started to learn that way. And, I mean, I, I saw a lot of footage as, like, I was syncing up slates um, to neighbor reels and stuff. So, you know, you're watching all of the raw footage. You're learning how everybody's shooting coverage. And, um, you know, from there, I, you know, I started tinkering around doing, um, you know, other post-production stuff, started getting into VFX because, uh, you know, I started doing, directing a lot of music videos. And with no budget music videos, you don't have money for VFX. And I was getting really tired of bugging my VFX friends all the time to do me favors. So I started learning how to do VFX myself. So I started doing that whole thing. And then, you know, I got into the film center and while I was out here, I was doing more music videos. So, you know, I was used to being on set. I was used to being in production. I had done, you know, I wasn't a ton of narrative stuff, but I had done around six short films you know by the time I hit the film center so I you know I knew that side of things um uh, or I was comfortable with that side of things um and so I think that gave me a bit of a different perspective for you know the role of of the showrunner on set you know like I was used Mm -hmm. to being on set I knew how the whole process worked I was really comfortable in an edit suite you know um the hardest part for me was being able to step back obviously because I was Mm -hmm. used to running everything and working with a director you know you really have to um you really have to look at it as, you know, they're bringing in – you're looking for people to bring in stuff that, you know, that that they can do better than you or give a different perspective than you because, you know, you're looking at the show overall. Sometimes you need somebody to look at this moment right now and be able to just deal with that as you're looking at things as the overall. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was really great, and I've totally gone on a tangent. I can't no, not at all. Not, not, not even a little bit, in fact. Uh, you know, uh, hearing that little bit of your background, it's it, – 
interesting. All sorts of sort of uh, alarms go off in me a little bit. Not alarms, but but it's interesting to. Uh, I mean, I, I would think, and is it fair to say that you know all of that very background in some very difficult parts of the industry? Like you know, a lot of a lot of writers uh, get to a point where. It's, the trouble is they've never been in an edit suite because yeah. there's a lot of producers that protect that side of it. Well, right? I mean, when, when uh, we were waiting for the pilot to get greenlit, like I was working as, uh, like as a tape operator again, part-time. So mm-hmm. I'd you know, write scripts, and then I would go and you know, work part-time, labeling DVDs for The Kink in My Hair because they were at like season two at that point. <laughs> like the same show that I was like, you know, in development with at the NSI. One day I walk into work, and there's a slow-motion shot of Less Than Kind you know, playing on the screen. And I'm like... Ooh, good for those guys, you know. Um, and actually, I got to I got to watch all 13 episodes of Less Than Kind back to back because I restriped them with the final audio. So I sat in a suite and got paid to watch your show. It was awesome, and that's the best way to see it. It's like all 13 back to back because it was so great. Um, you say what are, the, what are the creators from Less Than Kinds in the audience right here? Right yeah, now. Chris, right there. Um, and so yeah, what I would do is I'd be like labeling DVDs and setting up transfers, and then you know hopping on my bike, riding across town to set a meeting. CTV and then going back to label DVD. So it was like, it was really, really weird going through that whole experience. But I, I'd say definitely like that having all those different bits of pieces already in play by the time, you know, getting on set. I mean, the big, the, the, the weirdest thing, I guess the hardest thing was getting there and looking around and going, all right, nobody's told me I'm not the showrunner yet. So <laughs> I guess, I guess I have to start, you know, saying I'm the showrunner, which I don't even think I actually did until we actually got into season one. Like, we avoided the term, like, the play, because we were, like, worried that it was going to get pulled from me, you know, me and the producers. And when we were in the series, um, there was this one point where we were, like, going through scripts, we were dealing with budget stuff, and at one point we are like, okay, so we're going to do this, right? Well, I kind of looked around at each other, and it was like, there's no one else we have to talk to, right? We can just do this because we're the bosses. So what you're saying is you didn't challenge anybody, you didn't you didn't run it up the flagpole, you looked around, you didn't see anybody challenging you, and you just quietly, without pretense or pretension and checking with anybody, slipped into the role of showrunner. More or less, yeah. That is the most Canadian story I have ever Absolutely. heard in my life. Yes. Avoid conflict. Don't ever say anything in certain terms. Never use the word that, you know, never never use the word showrunner until, you know, it's too late. And, uh, yeah, and just avoid uh, that conversation. Change the topic. It worked for me. So. <laughs> this is, I, I'm, I'm dying here because it's just, you know, not how you're supposed to do things. No, and but I mean, that's the thing is that, like, you know, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse that I have never done things the way you're supposed to, and it's not like a point of pride. It's just turned out that way. But it, it does make things, you know, challenging because Did you make a deal with the devil? I, sometimes it feels like I did, you know, because now we're waiting for – it's been almost four months since the last uh, episode of Todd Season 1 is played, and we still don't know if we get, we're getting a second season. So I feel like maybe that's my the, – the, the stress I, I go through every morning waking up, waiting for that call. Uh, maybe that's my, uh, my, my deal at the other end. But it know, was worth it. It. Could go, it could be another five years. It for totally all you know. could be another five years. Maybe oh. another broadcaster buyout. I have no idea. All right. Well, as we move towards so – we're going to open it up to, uh, to questions in a moment. But um, uh, what I wanted to do to just end it off, just because uh, you've been very generous with your time here today, and uh, I, I'm, I'm a great admirer of your show and a great admirer you. of your candor and your honesty of uh, how you brought things here. So I guess 
because you're the guy that broke all the rules and had all the luck and all that sort of stuff, if you had if you had a you know a six year old ago um, Craig sitting in front of you or Craig Doppelganger sitting in front of you, what would your advice to them be? Well, obviously, I would not say anything because it worked out pretty well. Because you know? uh, I don't know. I mean, that's the whole thing where it's like I talk to people now and they're like, well, how do you pitch a show? And I'm like, well, you know, Todd would be the last show I would pitch because, like, it doesn't – like, who would air this, man? Like, it doesn't fit in anywhere. So, really, it was really a lack of, like – if I was going to talk to that that person, you know, six years ago, I would say, you know, don't worry about it. It will all work out. But uh, that six, that wouldn't that person wouldn't believe me. I hate to say it because you know, because we, we, we here here we you know on the one hand we we have these we have photocopy cop shows and lawyer shows and all this other stuff, but you know if you look at a distinctive sort of Canadian voice in television, you have Todd in the book, book pure evil, you have Less Than Kind that breaks a lot of rules, you have Trailer Park Boys, you have Slings and Arrows, a show that would never get done in the states. It seems like when we, we only find our voice when we step away and out of the courage of not doing a photocopy of a U.S. show that is a much higher budget. But uh, anyway, I, I really enjoyed uh, having you here, and uh, I sound like I'm wrapping up, and I shouldn't do that. So we're going to open it up to, uh, to questions from the audience now. If you want, I, I, I ask a question, and what I'll do is I'm going to so I'll repeat your question a little bit so that we get it on the on the uh, podcast as well. So why don't we go uh, right to the back there? Uh, it seems you've got quite a lot of effects in your show. So coming with an effects background, did that help you uh, cut corners or learn or know where you can make the most of your questions about effects in the show, basically. Kind of. I mean, one of the first things that was told to me by my very, very good friends and, and producers were, you're not doing any VFX on the show. We're not letting you. You're, you're not going to hole up in an After Effects suite and just, you know, tinker around on a shot. It's just not going to happen. Um, for the most part, I think the VFX background, you know, helped a lot. I mean, we had a VFX supervisor on set, uh, especially, like, when I was directing. Like, I was really lucky that, um, you know, and it wasn't that I said, like, I was going to direct the episodes that I wrote. It just turned out scheduling-wise. Well, mm -hmm. except for the season finale, because I really wanted to do the season finale. But um, it just kind of worked out that way. So um, there were certain things that, like in my episodes, I knew how I was going to do it. And so it was like, no, no, we're just going to do a split screen here. It'll work out great. Um, and so that was pretty easy. Um, somehow, through a weird twist of fate, and you're going to love this too, somehow we ended up with... Um, after we shot, we got more money from a different fund that we had just kind of found out about. Yes. So we managed to put a lot more money in our VFX budget. So uh, we put a lot of VFX on stuff that we never in a million years thought we were going to. We were like, this shot looks like it could use some VFX. And yet in that, question, in, in that episode we just watched as well, too, there was a lot, you know, there were a lot of in-camera effects. You used filters a lot to communicate stuff. Uh, you know, that, that climactic chase, you know, uh, I, I can see... Any one of about 15 ADs I know right now reading that oh, chase yeah. sequence and coming down the hall to you and going, are you crazy? Well, that's, that's the thing. That's like our, our amazing first AD, Doug Mitchell, would always sit down with me. He's like, okay, about this car chase. Mm -hmm. And, I, and you know, we would always be like – I would always say like, well, we're going to shoot a blue screen. He's like, yeah, but you're going to want to do those shots, you know, where you see that – no, no, we're going to do it all blue screen. It's like, but what about, you know, you want to see them going down the road. We're going to need a stunt. No, we're all just going to do a blue screen. And we started talking about the blue screen, and we would have to, like, pay for the comping on every shot. And so we were just like, fuck it. Let's just shoot it like, you know, poor man's process. No blue screen. We'll just, we'll just shoot it. And he was like, really? Is that what, but what about when the car goes off the cliff? And we all, we, it was like stock footage. Let's yeah. find a piece of stock footage. And we did. So we found a piece of stock footage. Um, the VFX, we had some money for the VFX to, like, paint it to look like the car. And we had the book right. flying out of it. But, like, 
I don't know. That's from like the Warner's catalog or something. Yeah. Like it's, I've seen that shot before. Yeah, totally. And, be, and because of, but and because of the kind of show it is, because, because of the you, kind you of show it is, material with vision and stuff. Yeah, it, it all works. It's all and, fine. I mean, it's just it's awesome when you can just say, okay, we're going to do a car chase. And we're going to shoot it in um, an ice rink, and we're just going to fill it with smoke, and we're going to put some you know black duvetine up and put little LED lights for lights in the background. You know, I, that was it was awesome. And great stuff. It was just great to do. Great stuff. We got a. We have a. Let's let's go down the front here. Yay! Yeah, maybe screen the view the the episodes first um, before because there's <laughs> there's some dubious content at times. So. No, not really. I think it was more of just us. I mean, we the pilot has a very similar scene to the short, and the the, the pilot follows more or less the same sort of storyline, even though it's a lot different. It's not about basketball. It's about like um like a heavy metal battle of the bands. But we do that whole kind of labored like it's the first time he's found the book. He opens the book, and we linger on the pages a bit more. Uh, but you get to the point where it's like shorthand, right? It's like okay, find the book. They mutter something in Latin, um, and uh, you know, it goes. Our part, our favorite part, is always when like like there's lots of blood. Yeah, that's and really what it comes down to. And, um, yeah, well, and it's also, I mean, our scripts. I mean, our scripts generally start off um, around 30 pages, and um, you know, there's always that whole thing too, where like a really dialogue-driven show. You know, mm-hmm. you can have like a 40-page, half-hour script, and you still could be coming up short. Yeah. I mean, with us, we have so much action, and uh, the way Charles and I both write is, um, you know, we'll have like a little line where it's like. You know, and Monster Fat destroys the cafeteria in an orgy of blood and violence. Right. You know, and it's like, okay, well, that's going to take a while and a lot of money. And, like, that's the one that gets circled with the big question mark. And, um, yeah, it's uh, – so, you know, really when it comes down to it, you're just trying to trim these scripts. You know, you're just trimming and trimming. And so it's like the first thing to go is, like, look, we know what happens with the book. You find the book. They open it. They say the spell. I mean, and that – for us, it's more about, like, how they find the book and how the book appears to them, and we try to do that. Um, you know, we try to have fun with that and try to find a new way for the book to appear every time. And, like, um, rather than, like, how they make the spell happen, uh, for me, it's always, like, how do we depict what the spell is? Like, it's always got to be a woodcut, and it's got to have something tying to do with tying into the theme of the episode and trying to figure that out. So, yeah. How many days per episode? Uh, four. Wow. Yes. Great. Uh, so right there. Um, I, it really struck me like kind of the unique um, kind of quality that the show had. Uh, uh, like touching on the things like the quality of the performances and stuff like that. Like it really clear to me that this is like a, a filmmaker's work. And it, Thank you. And it also uh, occurred to me that it's not often you get to see a show that's by a filmmaker. You know what I mean? Like usually it's written and then someone else directs it. There's not necessarily well, I think that's one of the things that, I mean, that's something that's always come up in conversation. I mean, the showrunner essentially should be that one, the person bridging that gap. You know, whether or not they wrote the episode or not, they're, they're 
The showrunner on a television series should be taking the role of what a director does on a feature film, like from you know the initiation process all the way through the end. And I mean, every it's every film is different, every show is different, but really the showrunner is there to maintain that creative vision, so it really does feel like there is um, you know a specific point of view being told. And in a perfect world, you I mean you know in a perfect world maybe you would have filmmakers making the show, but the prop but the other part of the uh, the process, which you must have found interesting, was the, uh, you know, once the assembly line kicks in, you've always got somebody's prepping, somebody's shooting, somebody's posting, and that that the beast always has to be fed at every iteration. Yeah. And, you know, you couldn't, you just couldn't have a director direct all thirteen because no, and it's, it's crazy, and it was cra- it was really tough for me, like being the showrunner and also, um, you know, prepping my own episodes and stuff. But I was really lucky that, you know, even though I am the showrunner of the show, really it, it is like a triumvirate. It's me and my uh, my two uh, non-writing producers, Andrew Rose and Anthony Leo. I mean, we're we go through every script together. We're always one of us is almost always on set, and um, somehow. I have no idea how, but we all really get it. You know, like like together, we all have the same you know idea behind it. And like, how did that happen? I mean, like Anthony and I did the short, you know, eight years ago. And like once we did the pilot, we were kind of like, wow, that actually worked out. We didn't kill each other. That's pretty cool. So it worked out really well. And I mean, that's that's how we got through it because you know everything like ends up. Everything in one way or another ends up filtering through each each one of us. And you know, when when I'm usually the one who you know has the um, the, the, the kind of creative push behind everything. So it'll be like, you know, if it's, I mean, like really coming down to just props, right? You know, it's like, okay, well, here's the prop, and it's like, you know, it'll go through me, it'll go through Anthony or Andrew, and if either one of them has like, you know, there's something wrong with this, it'll be like, okay, well, you know, I'll come up with, you know, okay, well, what if we do this? What if we do that? And then we'll all agree. Somehow we managed to do this with all of us agreeing, because if you if you get to a point where it's like, we all have to agree on this, eventually someone's going to give, because you have so much other work to do, so you right. only end up really fighting for the stuff that's really important to you. And the other stuff, you know, there's, you know, you're generally in the right ballpark anyways. Were there carve-outs of stuff that you, you that, you know, okay, Anthony is concentrating on this, I don't have to worry about that side, or, or was it really all collaboration all the time? It was kind of all collaboration all the time, and I right. think when we move into season two, we're probably going to want to um, you know, delegate a little bit more because it was getting pretty tough. Like, like I spent I don't know how long researching the t-shirts for Todd. Like, every <laughs> like what t-shirts he's wearing. Like, I had to go through all these like you know out of print you know shirts from companies that had collapsed that I saw in a shop once and I got a name and you know it, that took a long time. And at one point, Andrew actually said, "Like, you've got to stop looking at t-shirts now. <laughs> you've, you've got to look at something else." You know. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging, too. I mean, like, you know, um, because, you know, the producers are off doing different things. I mean, Anthony at one point um, was at MIP, uh, MIP TV, you know, promoting the show, and uh, the volcano happened. He was stuck in Cannes. Yeah. Uh, can. So, you know, it's generally – but generally the three of us um, are always in the loop on everything. Interesting. Okay. Does that answer your question? I, well, I didn't even ask the question. Oh, right. I'd like to ask this question real briefly. Is it, where are you at in terms of making the film? Uh, well, hopefully very close. So uh, we'll see. That's pretty much the best that I can say. So anytime between now and maybe the next 15 years, I'll finally get that feature <laughs> film off the ground. But, I mean, it's weird. It's one of those things, too, where it's, um, it's this whole divide between feature films and TV that's blurring more and more, you know, as, we, um, as, as the industries progress, right? Like um, there used to be this real sweet spot of, like, between $2 million and $10 million film where you could do, like, a really cool indie film, and that money is all pretty much – 
gone. Like you make a cool indie film for under two million, or you do like a, a big budget film for over fifty. Like the the middle ground is basically eradicated. But it's eradicated in the sense that all those stories, well, a lot of those stories are now being told in television, right? Like you get things like Breaking Bad, where that wouldn't be a TV show before, and now it's like a really great film that's being you know told in a very long, long way. And so coming from you know the film background, where it's like you know I grew up you know um, right you know when Kevin Smith did Clerks and Pulp Fiction was coming out. It was always like film, film, film. You want to make a feature film, you want to make a feature film. And then you get to a point where you're like, yeah, it's nice to get a paycheck and, uh, you know, people watch the show. And even if, like, not that many people are watching your TV show, hell of a lot more people watching your TV show than watching your film. Yeah. So it's, um, it's really interesting when you start looking at it that way. It's interesting. You know, and, and yet David Chase never stopped talking about how he wanted to do film. Yeah. You know, it's like you did The Sopranos, dude. You know, and but he always wanted to do film. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, other questions? We uh, the woman in the fourth row there. Good question. What yeah, do you totally. wish you'd done differently? What do I wish I had done differently? Um, that's a that's a really tough one because things worked out really really well you know so uh, I, I I mean the biggest thing is um, I wish I had developed more stuff you know like in all of those kind of fallow periods I wish I would have not moped as much and uh, you know wallowed in self pity and just generated more pitches you know because just you know the art of writing a pitch is um, is something that you know you can really benefit from um, you know in all capacities and I just wish I had kept doing that. Oh no! It was much more like staring at the little blinking cursor, going like, "Like, what's the fucking point?" <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was really that. Now so, we know you really are a writer. Yes. Um, so yeah, there, there was a lot of that. I mean, you know, certain things. It's like one of the. Like, I'm a producer on the show, too, which is really great because I kind of accidentally fell into that, as things always happen with me. Um, but uh, one of the best things about that is, like, I get to read contracts and, like, lots of them. And so I would say, like, not something I would do differently, but what I would say is learn how to read a contract and learn to love it. You know, like, really learn to love to read a contract because I know so many people who hate reading contracts and they just, like, get their agents to read it uh, or, you know, or write them. And uh, they often get screwed and not really, you know, not it's not really anybody's – well, I guess it is their agent's fault. Yeah, it's their agent's fault. Um, <laughs> you know, it maybe not maliciously, but, you know, read your contract and really know what you're getting into um, because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's important, you know. And also, like, learn how to read a budget too and, like, understand – yeah, you know, this is kind of a trap, though. It's like you can understand how a show gets produced, right? So when you write a, write a script, you can look at stuff and go, well, obviously we can't do that. I mean, there's like 19 background speaking roles, and we have like an explosion in the middle of the scene. Like you just can't do that. But the problem is then you start writing yourself. Um, you start losing the joy of writing. So it's like it's good to know what's producible when you're doing like a polish. But when you're writing that first draft, just learn how to check out and just like write for fun. And that's actually one of the best things about writing in TV and with writing part partnerships is, um, you know, I'm a bit more, because I've got a lot of the production background stuff, when I write with Charles, I'm a bit more of the, like, hey, you know, what if we do this, because I know it's a little bit easier to pull that off, when Charles is the full-on, like, okay, so it's like a 50-foot monster that breathes spam, and, you know, and it's like, yeah, all right, I would have never thought of that, you know, it's like, and you need that, you need the, uh, 
the sheer crazy, I have no idea how much it's going to cost uh, to get thrown into the scripts. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that sometimes get, gets misunderstood, too, is that is the way that you have to start there. Yeah. You know, the fact that we're, you know, when you're starting to write something, you are the only person and whoever you're working with, you're the only people in the entire production process that is starting from nothing. Yeah. Everything else is, in, is effectively an interpretive role. And a lot of the times, you know, if you have line producers or if you have a producer who's not comfortable giving you that first draft to explore, you know, you're starting from crippled creativity. And that's, you know, and it, it, part of the process is dreaming big and then figuring out, all right, how do we shoot it? Yeah. And uh, and if you don't understand that and don't approach that, I, I think that that's why we sometimes see a lot of these uh, projects with, to put it charitably, uh, medium ambition. Right? Yeah. I mean, i got to really give my producers um, credit. I mean, early on in the process, um, one of our episodes had like, you know, Todd had this dream sequence where he's riding his bicycle and then it turns into like he's flying on the book, throwing lightning at people. And, you know, at some point I was like, whoa, 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 guys, like when do, should we start scaling this down realistically? And, uh, you know, one of my producers said, no, just, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll figure out when the time is to scale it back and it's not now. So just keep writing big. And, uh, holy crap, I never thought we'd get away with what we got away with. And if we had started scaling back, we would have never gotten here. And that's the thing. Is never be afraid to go into um, – yeah, this is for all the budding producers out there. Don't be afraid to go into um, a meeting with a budget that sounds ludicrous because you might get it. Yeah. Great. Uh, Chris? What was the budget? It was somewhere above 500000 an episode and below a million dollars an episode. <laughs> but <laughs> – but that's also Winnipeg with lots of the, – the, the, does that include tax credits and stuff? Is that that's, everything um, Yes, that's all in. Oh, and, wow, okay. uh, but, uh, but in Winnipeg, when you uh, – <laughs> It's cheaper to shoot in Winnipeg. But with your catering, you have to hire a sous chef. Oh, okay. <laughs> True. Um, sorry, was it enough money? Um, yeah, actually, because, I mean, like some of our stuff was like really like written too big at, at times. And when you're really looking at, you know, the real reality of it, we're like, you know, we actually don't even really need this stunt and we don't really need this thing. And you end up with a lot of creative decisions, like the whole car chase being shot in um, like uh, in camera, basically, with um, in a uh, skating rink that came out of us. Like we originally wanted to do blue screen or rear projection, but it was just going to cost too much. Like every shot that we do against blue screen was going to cost us a ton of money. And that's what you know, resulted in this, and this is way more of what our show is, you know, it's fun and it's goofy, but I mean, our show can accommodate that, too, and I mean, our show is such a wide range of stuff going on in it, um, there's a lot of restraints that other shows have that we don't, I mean, we had four very different directors, well, maybe we weren't that dif different, but very different shooting styles, but our show can accommodate that, because, you know, each one is like a little mini-movie, and, you know, it gets pretty wacky, and so we were, we were really lucky to be able to, um, have a show that could do that. And that goes into, like, you know, the writing process, too. We were in development on season two, and, um, you know, at one point we were at lunch, and uh, we were talking about, like, writing poli police procedurals. Mm -hmm. And we were just like, you know, because, you know, we're all trying to, you know, come up with new stuff to pitch, you know. And we're like, yeah, i got to write a, some sort of procedural, you know. Got to do it. And it's like, Boy, you know, doctor cop. Well, and we just couldn't figure, like, like, we just couldn't figure out how to do it because it's like 
like someone's got to die every episode and you got to like have a mystery or something. Where in the Todd room, it's like literally, it's like, like okay, season two, what do we got? Uh, cheerleaders, um, steroids, cheerleaders on steroids, cheerleaders use the book to get really buff. That's great because we can get like stuntmen and just like cut to a close up when they remove the mask and it's the girl, right? And, um, you know, we can do that on our show. And that's like us breaking a story is like, yeah, a giant river running through the school and everybody turns into cavemen. Like, you know, you can't do that in all shows. Uh, I'm going to try to take a couple more questions before we uh, wrap this up. So anybody else uh, burning with one? Yes? Yes? Did you have to fight to be able to direct one of your episodes? Or was that kind of a given when you negotiated? No, it was – well, I mean, it was kind of funny because, like, you know, this is one of those great things about contracts is that you always get this, like, subject to broadcaster approval, which basically means, well, you're shit out of luck, you know? Um, and uh, – but, yeah, it was it – was, strangely enough, it seemed more of a challenge to get directing the episodes than it was to showrun the show – um, because I guess we were just really good at not really talking about show running, but I <laughs> was talking about directing. So I guess if I never brought it up, I probably would have been able to direct the whole thing. But, um, no, it was, um, it was a bit of a challenge. I mean, I really, really, really wanted to direct the pilot, and, but it was so obvious that was not going to happen. Um, so when the series came up, um, you know, I, uh, I, again, I got to really credit my producers for going to bat for me and just saying, like, now Craig's got to direct some episodes. And, uh, yeah, and then again, Fraser, you know, um, barking up the chain uh, to, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the top level at CTV said, you know, Craig's got to direct some episodes. And they said, okay. So great to have executives like that in Canada. He's gone to the States. Um, Actually, he's gone to England. He's at NBC Universal. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's oh, in London. Good. That's good. Um, okay, so uh, I think we have time for two more questions. Yes? I just wanted to know um, how many directors you did have on it. Four. How many, how many prep days did they get? Did you binge? Did it, like, what was your shooting schedule? Like, how many days on, how many days off? Um, it was, well, I mean, it was, uh, you know, blocks of two. So it was eight days shooting straight uh, and eight days of prep, basically. Yeah, pretty much. So, um, yeah, we had two directors do four episodes and two directors do two. Uh, and then we already had a pilot already shot. We did some reshoots for that. Um, we generally – we had a few kind of um, weird uh, block shooty things. Uh, part of the reason why I ended up directing the uh, car chase episode was because we shot the car chase and all the exteriors at the end of the shoot, but we had to shoot a lot of the other stuff earlier. And since I was always around, um, it seemed to make sense to have me be the director of that. Like any of the episodes that were really chopped up, um, that was me. And um, – yeah, and because we were shooting in Winnipeg uh, during the winter, we really didn't want to have all of our exteriors be snowy. So we um, shot all of our exteriors block shot at the end of the shoot as well. So that was a little bit tricky to organize. And then everything, like every, almost every episode has a little scene in the satanic lair, uh, which we block shot over, um, I think, two or three days at the end of um, production as well. So after those eight days, did you take a break? Or like no, it would just go straight through. Eight and then eight. Well, besides weekends, of course. Right. But, yeah, so it would be... Yeah, it's five days, five days, five days. Did you take yeah. a hiatus? Uh, nope, no hiatus. Well. Yeah. But again, too, we had all 13 episodes written, right? Right. And actually, we, and we were greenlit in September, but didn't go to camera until March. So we had a, oh, lot, so you had of a lot of time. Oh, a lot of time to prep. A lot of time to prep. I mean, we spent, um, I mean, we spent a good month and a half just going from page one of episode one all the way through 13. Wow, great. So, so um, yet another thing that never, ever happens. Oh, and <laughs> man, we had so much time in post, too. Wow. Craig, when, when you walk down the street, do you walk under under ladders? And <laughs> well, here's the thing is, um, like, you know, we when we shot the pilot, right, 
Um, again, we're in the same situation where we're in now that it's like, you know, we expected to find out within three weeks and three weeks turns into six weeks and turns into months and months. Meanwhile, you know, my, uh, my wife, you know, is pregnant. Um, and you know, I'm at that point where it's like, like, holy crap, my wife's pregnant. I'm going to have to go back to labeling DVDs. My mm-hmm. show is totally toasted. And, uh, you know, it was, it was like a really tough summer. And that was just like, I, this is just going to, you know, I, I, was really falling apart and then we get this email from Fraser saying we need to talk tomorrow about Todd and you know that didn't sound very good <laughs> and so you know of course I lied to my wife and said like I'm going to the gym uh, the next day uh, which I rarely did and surprisingly she didn't catch on and so did like, you actually take gym clothes I was in my gym clothes and oh, I walked oh out God. around the block and I was, was like so sitting there with my phone uh, and you know Fraser said you know we'd like to do the series with you and I was like you know so excited I ran home and threw open the door and said like I'm not a loser anymore and uh, then we got to do the series, and uh, my son was born halfway through production, right after I finished my first director's block. And uh, so it was a crazy year because I got to do my show. Uh, my son was born. Um, I got to spend four months in Winnipeg. It was like a dream come true. It was like <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. Kent. Um, I guess the good news about all that development time was that you had 13 episodes. Absolutely. Going into the, so in anticipating season two, are you hoping for the same thing? And if not, well, here's the thing is that, um, I mean, we did get development for uh, initially two episodes and, like, a season arc. Uh, but then we ended up getting another phase of development for, um, like, five more outlines on top of that, uh, plus another script. So we've got, like, for us, the big thing is the outline. We do really, really detailed outlines. I mean, the scripts are going to change a lot. We're always doing punch-up When you say passes. really, really detailed, how many pages? How detailed? Um, for a half hour, it's generally around, like, eight seven to eight pages single space. It's pretty detailed. Yeah, and it's like it's every scene, right? We basically right. do every scene without dialogue, and sometimes we throw the dialogue in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not recommending doing that because sometimes it's better to do something a lot briefer, especially when you're sending it to notes because you haven't really been able to you know, work it out in the script yet, and mm-hmm. sometimes things get bumped when you really haven't worked them out yet. But that's, that's what we do. And so um, once we have a really detailed outline, we can turn around scripts pretty quick. And, I mean, a lot of our pre-production stuff that saved us um, on the series in season one. A lot of it was the monster building. Like, that took a lot of time. So having all 13 scripts is really helpful for that. Um, so we're really about attacking, like, the core stories, the A stories. So if we get greenlit, like, tomorrow, um, you know, we'd immediately start writing those other scripts and, uh, you know, start breaking the last five episodes. We have a pretty good idea of what we're doing with those, too. So conceivably, we would be going into production with all 13 scripts again, although probably not as quite um, as a, at a finished stage. So there would be a, um, well, in season one we had three writers, and then this season it will be anywhere between four and six, depending and on how things work out. In the room doing it every day. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we've always had a weird notion of the room. Um, I mean, a lot of the time, I mean, the room for years was Charles's kitchen and mm-hmm. him chain smoking, us drinking. And then we got green light and we were in a boardroom and it was him and I and no more chain smoking or drinking, but it was just him and I in this big boardroom going through all the scripts. So, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully, conceivably, we would get six people in a room, uh, but it all depends on availability and stuff. So, Well, well thanks. Great. Thanks a lot, everybody. I should say for the audience here and for the audience listening to the podcast, uh, Craig, if you haven't heard about season two by the time this comes up, maybe if you are a fan of Todd and the Book of Pure Evil, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to maybe write Space Channel a letter telling them how much you like it and how much you'd love to see more. Uh, or, or you could offer me a job. <laughs> One or the other. Um, 
thank you so much for coming thank by. Thank you so much for having and me. You've been really great, and you've shared so much and been very can- uh, shown a lot of candor and a lot of uh, enthusiasm. And uh, I salute you. I love your show. And, uh, and thanks very much for being part of this. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. And that's it. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at writerstalkingtv, that's all one word, at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please log on to iTunes and leave us positive feedback to help increase the profile of the show. This podcast is sponsored by the Writers Guild of Canada. The show's technical producer is Philip Vukovic. I'm Dennis McGrath, reminding you, as the great Ozzy Osbourne once said, could be worse. I could be staying. Thanks for listening.